This is the Game of Life podcast, and I'm your host, Sophia Day. My guest this week is Professor Christopher Bartell. Chris is a professor of philosophy at Appalachian State University, and his main research interests are in aesthetics and ethics. He's the author of the book, Video Games, Violence, and the Ethics of Fantasy Killing Time, and the author of the upcoming book, Aesthetics in Video Games. We explore ethics in violent games and game design choices across a wide range of games like Red Dead Redemption. Thanks to T. Nguyen, philosophy professor and author of the book, Games Agency as Art, for telling me to talk to Chris. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Bartel. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. How does one go from studying sound engineering at Berklee College of Music to becoming mm-hmm. a philosophy professor? Uh, good question. Um, it was a weird transition. When I was an undergraduate, I was a music major. I was actually a punk musician. I really enjoyed recording and working as a musician, but it was a life that I could tell right away was going to be a hard life and it wasn't going to pay the bills very easily. I mean, surprisingly, there's not a lot of money in punk music. I ended up getting sucked into philosophy because of this one conversation that I had with my mother. So Berkeley College of Music is really known for their work on jazz. Everybody who goes there has to study a whole bunch of jazz. One of the classic albums is Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I had an assignment where I had to pick apart this one trumpet solo. And so I'm listening to this thing and my mother's listening in. At some point she says, I love the sound of the trumpet here. And it was really funny that she said that because there was no trumpet playing. It was actually a saxophone. And I said to her, oh, there is no trumpet. This is a saxophone. And she was surprised. She said, that's a saxophone? I said, yeah, there's two saxophone players and a trumpet player in this band. And she said, wait, there's three horn players? Like she didn't hear it. She thought all of the horns was one person and it was one trumpet. I explained to her, no, there's actually six musicians on the album. There's two, there's one trumpet and two saxophones. And then there's bass, piano, and drums. And she was blown away. I sang the different parts for her so that she could distinguish the sound of the trumpet from the saxophones. And suddenly she said, oh my God, now I can hear it. And that really, like that kind of stuck with me. How is it that somebody, how is it that our experience changes? All I did was I told her what to listen for. And she said that the way that it sounded changed to her. And that just really stunned me. And I kept thinking about that. And I realized that I was never going to figure out how that worked by playing more music. I had to study something else. And what I was interested in was the perception of sound. So I ended up getting into philosophy and getting sucked into stuff on perception and music. And then I just transitioned out of the music industry. Here I am. It's that broader point about when you awaken or see something in a more Mm -hmm. clarifying way, you see reality differently. Yeah. And and it's like, sometimes the difference is just, it's not that the world changes. Mm -hmm. It's that my mind changes and somehow it appears differently to me. I was really interested when I was a grad student on trying to figure out whether musicians actually hear music differently from non-trained listeners. Does my music training mean that sound actually sounds different to me than it does to other people? So that's what I, I got really passionate about. 
then how did you get from sound to video games? And I know you have a lot of work around aesthetics as well. So I presume that interplays. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I got into aesthetics because obviously this intersects with music. I got into video games kind of for two reasons. One is that I... When I was a musician, I suddenly found that I stopped loving music. Like at a point where I had to try to make a career out of music, I started to get disappointed and resentful and, you know, really sad about I'm not paying the bills the way that I thought I would. And that made me... start to dislike music and that that was really painful and terrifying moment when I realized that this thing I was passionate about I was starting to get resentful over so part of the reason why I got into studying video games is because I still have this residual anxiety about I don't want to turn music into a career move I want it to be this personal special thing that I love that I don't make money off of. The other reason is because I've been playing video games for so long that I feel like I should make (laughs) something of this life experience. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's hard to justify the amount of time that I've played. (laughs) So you might as well. So I might as well well integrate it. I got to get something out of this. Yeah. What's your personal relationship to video games now? Do you play them? And Mm. what types of video games have you been drawn to? I do play. I don't play as much as I wish I did. I have a career now and I have a daughter. So I spend most of my time just trying to introduce her to games. She's 10 now. So I end up playing a lot of stuff with her. She wants to play Animal Crossing a lot more than I do. But we still, you know, we find things that we can play together. We play a lot of Mario Kart. We play a lot of Stardew Valley. I've got her finally into Zelda, into playing Breath of the Wild. She's been watching me play that for years. What I did early on when she was like seven or eight is I got my character leveled up to a point where like there's no chance that my character is going to die really quickly. And then I would just hand it to her and let her just run around in, in Hyrule and do whatever she wants. And she did silly things like she tried to, you know, ride as many deer as she could. And she tried to build a little house and mow the lawn with her axe. So I'm really happy now that she's decided to start her own game and try to level up her own character and kind of take ownership of it. And that game and Stardew Valley are beautiful aesthetically. I, yes, I I I'm so addicted to Stardew Valley. I love those games. Um, I tend to play role-playing games. I really like high fantasy role-playing games. I'm in love with the Dragon Age series and Skyrim was, of course, a great game. The two most recent games that I really love are Horizon Zero Dawn. I also have thoughts about Horizon Forbidden West. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's good. And I recently played through... Ghost of Tsushima for like the fourth time. That game is amazing. I just absolutely love the combat of it. That leads me into Mm -hmm. your book, Video Games, Violence and the Ethics of Fantasy. Have you personally played violent video games? I do quite a bit. And I can't really pretend that it's all for research. In your book, Mm -hmm. you state it is morally wrong for players to enact violent fantasies in games willingly because doing so contributes to the player's cultivation of a vicious moral character. That's a very strong statement. Strong. Yeah, it's strong words. I come out swinging. Can Um, you unpack that? What I'm trying to do, and, and this is probably a bit, I'm trying to have it both ways, really. 
What I'm trying to do is point out that on the one hand, playing violent games isn't itself a bad thing. By the time I wrote the book, I had been playing video games for decades, and it kind of occurred to me as I was writing it that I have killed thousands of things in games. It's been, you know, virtual genocide for decades. And it does make me wonder, why did I do that? If, if you met a person for the first time, and the first thing that they told you is that I spend much of my days just thinking about killing things, I bet you'd be freaked out right of i'd course. bet you'd be like well that's a weirdo right yeah um, that's meant for I, netflix documentary series exactly right so if you know you met somebody for the first time and you find out that they spend much of their time fantasizing about killing things in games why does that make it better somehow we've decided that it's better because it's just a game and i'm really fascinated by that what is it about the being just a game that makes it okay on the one hand i want to distinguish between there's innocent reasons to do bad things in games to kill things in games. There are lots of innocent reasons why. Like, I'm interested in the competition, right? And it's a competitive game, so that's why I do really violent things in the games. Or I'm interested in having a really rich, complex aesthetic experience, and so I kill things in games because I want to experience, you know, the dark side of things. I want to experience the full range of human emotions, not just Stardew Valley. Or, you know, one of the more common reasons why people do vicious things in games is because they want to gross out their friends. And that maybe that's a childish reason, but that's an innocent one. And I want to distinguish that from there are other reasons why we kill in games or we do vicious things in games that are not so innocent. One example that I could point out is Red Dead Redemption Online. When you're playing Red Dead Redemption Online, there's a city that you can go to where there is a woman who is a suffragette. The game is set in the 1880s, 1890s, I forget exactly when. So she's campaigning for a women's right to vote. And you can beat her up. And lots of players have taken to beating the hell out of her and posting their posting their exploits on YouTube. And you can hear the players as they're beating her up, yelling things like, die, you feminist bitch. And I don't think what's happening there is an innocent one. This isn't like I'm playing a mission in the game and I'm playing in Red Dead Redemption, you're playing as a criminal, so of course you're going to do violent things. This is a really different motivation. What is yeah. it that's motivating players to beat the hell out of the suffragette and post it online is, is a totally different thing from I'm just competing in the game. For that example is part of the reason that's more morally wrong because they could choose not to partake in that. Is part of it that they could choose to do otherwise? Well, in that case, they could choose to do otherwise. If you think about, there are a whole bunch of things in video games that we're coerced into doing. And I do it because the game makes me do it. And if I want to finish the game, if I want to keep playing, then I have to go through this mission. Of course, players always have the option to turn the game off. But I find it really interesting that many players don't turn the game off. Sometimes when a game pushes me into doing something that I'm uncomfortable with, there's a whole bunch of complex reasons why I either turn the game off or I keep playing. So my basic point is I don't always have the freedom to do otherwise in a game. Sometimes I have to do what the game wants me to do. So choice isn't really... Mm. To me, all that interesting. It's not that the suffragette problem is a problem because it was a choice. I think it's a problem because it's a form of violence that the player seems to really delight in. They really mean what they're doing. Think about the difference between if you're doing something in a game that the game forces you to do. And I go through it and this isn't really what I want to do, but I'm going through it anyways because I'm enjoying the game. A typical reason why if a game puts me into a situation that I'm uncomfortable with 
and I go through with it is because I kind of trust the game designer. I kind of trust the game designer that surely they're making me do this uncomfortable thing because there's going to be some big payoff in a minute and the story is going to make sense of this for me. So think of Grand Theft Auto 5. There's a torture scene where you have to torture a character to get information out of them. While that made me uncomfortable, I went through with it because I trust that like there's going to be a story payoff. I think that would be really different from now imagine a person who really delights in the torture. They enjoy it so much that they stop the game and restart and keep playing that scene. I think that's a different player entirely. I think that's a different motivation for playing the game entirely. This isn't really about having a rich, complex aesthetic experience. It's not really about the story. This is about something much darker. It's about enjoying torturing something and seeing it suffer, even though it's a virtual thing. Speak to something about motivation. I wonder if there's a fine line though, because what if you go into the torture scene or you go into the suffragette scene, maybe you don't quite understand what's happening and you end up, I'm not saying you end up thinking that was awesome, but it was kind of enjoyable. Like it wasn't non-neutral. And that's really interesting. That doesn't make you necessarily, maybe you're not really, you weren't motivated in there. You were just still part of this player in a game. It feels like there's a fine line. It's a slippery slope. I think there is a fine line. Let me tell you about a violent thing that I did in the game. So Red Dead Redemption 1. I have a friend, he's another philosophy professor in the university where I work, and he and I were playing Red Dead Redemption at about the same time. And one day he comes into the office and he says, did you know that you can tie up villagers and leave them on train tracks and just watch trains run them over? I had no idea. So of course I ran home and immediately tried that. Totally. Yeah, of course. It's kind of like fascinating. Here's an innocent reason why you would do a bad thing in a game, because it's fascinating. I'm experimenting with the mechanics in the world of the game. And would the game really go that far and let me watch people get run over by trains. It turns out that in that game, you can. It also turns out that you get a trophy for it. Here's another innocent motivation. If you're a completionist, When you play a game, you want to completely get every trophy that the game possibly offers. Then one of the things you have to do is tie people to train tracks. But you only have to do it once. You don't have to do it twice. If I came on your podcast and you asked me, so what? how did you spend last weekend? And I told you, oh, I spent the whole weekend playing Red Dead Redemption. The only thing I did for two solid days was tie people to train tracks and watch trains run them over. That's weird. What is that about? Why would that you? Is do that is a little bit weird. Well, that's yeah, not different. a little bit. That's it's definitely <laughs> yeah. weird. Have you seen research where there are human beings doing morally questionable behavior, like repeatedly going into video games for certain violent acts? So I can cherry pick some examples. What I would love to know is I would love to see some empirical data on how common is this. When I wrote the book, I thought that it was fairly uncommon. But even though it's uncommon, it's still a bad thing. If you think about murder, murder is actually uncommon. The number of murderers there are in the world is not that big. It's a small percentage of people in the world who are murderers, but they're still bad, right? The fact that it's uncommon doesn't mean we shouldn't punish it or we shouldn't be worried about it. I wondered like how common is it? One example that I use in the book is the example of Anders Breivik. He's a Norwegian mass shooter. He murdered 78 people in Norway. I've This is like over a decade ago now. 
during his trial, he actually, under oath, testified that to psych himself up to to carry out his, his mass killing, he actually played Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. In the game, the very first mission in the game, you have to join a terrorist cell and massacre a whole bunch of civilians in an airport. And he said that he played that scene on repeat. He would just play through that scene and then stop the game and, and start over. And he just kept playing that over and over again to psych himself up for his own real world attack. Now that's an extreme case and that's a cherry picked case. But how common is it? I don't know. When I wrote the book, I thought it was uncommon. But then after I wrote the book, I was reading articles about Red Dead Redemption 2 and people beating up the suffragette. And it occurred to me, this is actually more common than I thought. That's not an innocent case of violence. That's a really vicious case where somebody is acting out their real world beliefs. And, and this, I think, is the key thing, is that when you're using a game as a tool to act out your real world beliefs, that's where it crosses the line into becoming a problem. Most of your listeners are probably totally awesome people, right? They're probably totally reasonable, fine people who are not doing vicious, terrible. They're not bad people. When they play Grand Theft Auto, when they play Red Dead Redemption, when they play Call of Duty, they're probably doing it in a thoughtful, aesthetically rich, interesting way. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. For the Anders Breiviks of the world or the misogynists who want to beat up suffrage jets of the world, they've crossed the line. And I'm curious, how common is it? I don't really know. Another thing I was going to ask you is perhaps someone reading your book who's trying to defend partaking in violent fantasies and having some motivation to carry that out is why does it matter if these people are not violent in the real world? They're playing in this digital world, this mm -hmm. digital fantasy, and they're not killing people in real life. The suffragette example, I think, is a little bit hazy because my guess is they're probably pretty misogynistic in real right? life. Right? Yeah, it's but hard to say that, that there's that's no That's a little bit world. like, because violence is, as you mentioned, extreme. Most people are not it, going to go kill someone. So mm -hmm. what about that consequentialism yes. retort? I totally understand that. And and that's, that's why I think the video games case is so fascinating is because on the one hand, I am doing nothing more than rearranging pixels on a screen. That's totally true. But in one sense, if you can abstract away as much as you possibly can, really, I'm just rearranging pixels on a screen. But in a, in another sense, that's not what's happened. The mm -hmm. pixels on a screen represent something, and I'm motivated to do things with those pixels because of things that really motivate me. It's true that there are a whole bunch of players who do violent things in games, but they don't go out into the real world and do violent things in the real world. But I think it's interesting the way that fantasies work, right? When a person fantasizes about something... You get, think of what a fantasy is. It's really like a commitment to this thing. There are lots of different kinds that people have. There are some that enter my mind and they're momentary little blips in my head. And I think about something and then it fades away. And I never return to that thought again. Those are passive, just fleeting fantasies. Maybe sometimes there are even fantasies that disturb me. Like a thought pops into my head and I'm upset about it. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I thought of that. I'm sure that happens to, you know, not just me. It happens to other everyone. <laughs> exactly. But on the other <laughs> On the other hand, there are active fantasies. There are thoughts that we come back to over and over again, like ideas that we develop over years. And those are kind of like the fantasies that are part of 
our personality. They make up part of what I value and how I see the world and what I think is worthwhile. Even though I might not go out into the world and actually act on those fantasies, they do kind of color what I want, what I desire, what I value. Even though I don't act on these things, they influence what I want the world to be. And maybe I become disappointed that the world isn't the way that I think it should be. Just to up the ante a bit on the whole conversation. So we're talking about violence in games. And that's a really common thing that players do. What if we were talking about something else? What if we were talking about sex in games? Then would we be so confident that that anything I do in the game is just fiction, that it doesn't really matter, that I don't really mean it? So I can play Red Dead Redemption, I can watch people get run over by train tracks, and I can back up and say, obviously, I'm not into this. But if there were, you know, hardcore porn video games, could I really say, well, I'm not into this? That, that seems unlikely to me. Yeah, that's much blurrier. I think it is. Yeah, blurrier is a good way to put it. I, I don't want to say that there is some absolute here that anything you do in a porn video game is really commitment that really is part of your personality. Maybe, then again, maybe not. There are games where, you know, sex does happen in games. There are games where some of the sex can be violent or even illegal. There are pedophilia video games. There are games where the player's job is to rape people in the game, and sometimes they're underage people. There's a notorious game that came out in 2006. It's a Japanese game called Rayplay. In the game, you play as a young man who he's very angry at this older woman and her two daughters. So he, out of vengeance, rapes this woman and her two daughters. And the daughters are, I think, the ages of 12 and 14. So this is definitely underage. This is definitely an act of pedophilia. And we can intellectually back up and say, oh, but you're doing nothing more than arranging pixels on a screen. You know, I think that's that's a cheap excuse. You're not arranging pixels on a screen. You're engaging in a fantasy that maybe you ought not to engage in this fantasy. I want to get your take on the creators or designers of these video games. You mentioned a lot of these games, Red Dead Redemption. There's games like GTA. They're role-playing games and they're open universe. So you can do these violent acts. Maybe they're mm -hmm. not saying go do them, or maybe there's not an incentive in the game, but you're allowing for that. Is that problematic to you from the perspective of these people who are designing games or creating games? Yeah, there's a lot to say here. One thing I'll just quickly mention is that my book doesn't really talk about this at all. Well, I kind of bring it up in the last chapter, but the book isn't really about whether the designer has a moral obligation. It's really about the player's moral obligation. It's really mm. from the player's point of view, like, what am I doing? when I play this game. In the last chapter, I mentioned that like, and designers should think about this too, because the interesting thing that comes up for designers is that you're giving players opportunities to do something you're also taking away opportunities to do other things. Like, obviously, games are limited, right? I can't design a game where you can literally do absolutely anything you want. Uh, that would just be recreating life. Think of Grand Theft Auto. So you play as a criminal, and the way that you interact with the world is through stealing things or killing people, right? That's And that's a, that's the game designer's choice. Right? Yep. The game designer chose so that the only way you can interact with the world is by killing or stealing. I never have the opportunity to, like, give up the thug life and go to community college. I don't have the opportunity to volunteer in a soup kitchen. You're limited in what you can do. And within the narrow range of limitations, you can you can do better and you can do worse. I have a student in a class right now with me. I'm teaching a class that is philosophy and video games. And this kid, I love this kid. He's so funny. We were talking about Red Dead Redemption and he was kind of perplexed as we were talking about the main story because it turns out he's been playing the game for like a hundred hours, but he doesn't bother 
with the story at all. He uses the game as basically like a fishing simulator. All he does is he goes camping, he rides his horse, and then he goes fishing. And that's that's Red Dead Redemption for him. There's He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't even know what the main story is. There's this whole universe about what is the purpose of art because mm. art is an expression or it allows us to see certain things. And it's like the human project of exploring mm -hmm. different ideas, enabling us to think from a different perspective. When thinking through what you've written about and what you've researched, part of the human project is like, we do have to create art. We should yeah. create art. Yeah. And Maybe a suggestion. So I, I know you're asking about art generally, but yes. I, I'm a nerd, so I want to bring it back to video games really Okay, quickly. let's do that, it. Like, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating about games is if we're talking about traditional arts, up to this point, most of the traditional arts are fairly passive. They're designed by a, an artist, and then the audience just passively receives it. You watch the movie, you read the novel, you listen to the song, you don't really have any control over it as an audience member. Video games are fascinating because they're giving control to audience members. And now there's this interesting like dialogue between the designer and the user, much more so than in, you know, the traditional art. Of course, the traditional arts can do that a bit, but video games do it at a much higher rate. Totally. Um, so you can think of a game like Grand Theft Auto. The, the designers have in mind their aim is to create a satire of, of America. So the game is supposed to be satirical. I'm not sure that every 12 year old who plays it, know, you know, grasps satire. Right. But the game is supposed to be satirical. And that's the designer's input. That's that's what they're trying to express to the player. But the player gets to take that and do what they want with it. In the suffragette case, right, the designers created the character of the suffragette and made her killable. That That is a choice. You don't have to do that. There are lots of NPCs in games that are not killable. Like most children in a game you can't kill. In lots of games, like in Horizon Zero Dawn, you can't kill villagers. In Zelda Breath of the Wild, you can't kill things that are not monsters. But when you walk into a village, no matter how much you swing your sword at people, they just look at you like you're being rude, which I kind of love that. That's a choice to make things killable or not killable. So the game designers of Red Dead Redemption Online decided that the suffragette could be killable. And players found that and they expressed what they wanted with it. So it, it's an interesting dialogue. I mean, part of this is you can ask about, like, are there moral responsibilities on either side, the, the game designer's side or the player's side, in that conversation? You have an upcoming book slated for 2024. I it's, hope, yes. Hopefully. It's called Aesthetics and video games. Are you able to share a little bit about it and what's motivating this book? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll give you one like central idea that I'm really in love with. And I don't know if this is a great idea, but I love this idea. It's supposed to be a general theory of why we find games aesthetically engaging. Like what is it we find aesthetically worthwhile in games? And the basic point is that there isn't one answer to that question. There are lots of different answers. Like we find lots of different things aesthetically engaging in games. And it kind of depends on what kind of game you're playing and what you're trying to do with the game. Really broadly, for all video games, there's basically three things that players do. And I think that there are different sources of aesthetic enjoyment for each of these three things. One thing that we do is we seek goals. We try to win. We try to score the highest points. We try to explore the map. We try to do better than our friends, right? You try to win. And there's an aesthetics to goal seeking. There's an aesthetics to striving and trying to win and so on. The second thing that we do with games is we engage with a narrative. The game designer is telling us a story and I engage with the story in a very simple way that I engage with most narratives, like the way that I watch a movie. I enjoy the foreshadowing. I enjoy the character development. I enjoy the basic story of what's being told me to 
me. The third thing that we do, and this is the thing that I'm most excited about, is that we play with dolls. Right. To a degree, a, a video game is a digital dollhouse. And what I do is I do things like I play dress up. Think of when you're playing with dolls. You do things like you play dress up and you put your dolls into little relationships and you project into the game or you project into the world a story of your own making. In that case, it's not a narrative that the game designer is telling you. It's something else. It's like the student that I was just telling you about who plays Red Dead Redemption 2 as a camping simulator. For him, the game is really a dollhouse and what he's decided to do is he's taking his doll and he's dressing it up as a cowboy that goes camping and he's living out this little internal fantasy of camping and fishing. I think that's actually way more common than people are willing to realize or people often realize that we treat games as dolls. Every single time I customize my avatar, what I'm what am I doing? I'm just playing dress up. I don't mean to suggest that games are dolls in a negative way. I don't mean to suggest that they're childish or they're worthless or you know it's nothing more than at all. What I want to suggest is actually there's a whole bunch of joy and pleasure that people obviously get from playing with dolls. So we should lean into that. We should unashamedly happily play with dolls and play dress up with our dolls in games and not worry about it. It's a source of joy. I want your quick fire takes just immediate thoughts about okay. a few different concepts. The first is the metaverse. A lot of these video games are probably going to be way more realistic with better technology. So VR being one of them. There's VR porn right now. Oh, yeah. So my quick take is the point that I'm making in the ethics book about how the things that we do in a game really reflect our real our our fantasies is going to be amplified tenfold when we get into VR because there's something so much more visceral and personal about it. I keep thinking about cases where women who go into VR worlds talk about how how long they're in the world before they're sexually assaulted and I think I think that's part of it, right? We like to think that there's this strict division between fantasy and reality and yet the line is blurred so often. And if the line gets blurred so often, I think that's partly because we're projecting our real world desires into these, you know, metaverses. I think it will just amplify it quite a bit. We talked about role playing meta in certain games where actually that may not be the intention, taking on certain violent actions or doing certain actions. But there's a lot of companies like Roblox, Minecraft that are very much open world and rely on user generated content. These games often have much younger players age wise. What do you think about that? First, Minecraft is a dollhouse, obviously. I know that you can win it. I know that you can beat the Ender Dragon, but that's not what most people want to do with the game. Most people want it to be a toy where I can, you know, it, it's advanced Lego, I guess. Roblox, I haven't, I, I haven't looked into Roblox very much. I don't allow my daughter to play it because I really just don't trust the other designers on it. And I think that's, that's the thing that I get most interested in is the way that companies want to create this thing, but they also don't want to own responsibility for what happens on the thing. And I don't know that you can have it both ways, right? So you want to create this thing, but you want other people not just to work for you for free by creating content, but also you want to divorce yourself from any responsibility of what happens. I, well, you know, at some point, somebody owns this thing. And the last thing I want to get your take on is identity. And you mentioned avatars. They're getting more and more realistic. So it's less about, oh, here's the set of cartoon characters and they look so friendly. And all you have to do is choose the hat. But sometimes these avatars look like you. Mm -hmm. You're infusing yeah. a lot more basically into yourself. 
So there's this interesting question about like, how much do people identify with their avatars? Is it just a fiction or is it actually like a representation of you in the world where what you do in the world still really reflects you? I find it interesting that really sophisticated players who play a lot of video games can make that switch easily. Like you can distinguish quite clearly between this is an avatar that means something to me and this other avatar really doesn't. And I can like change these things like I change clothes. Less sophisticated players don't do that. I'm always fascinated to watch my daughter you know, she's 10 years old. When she designs an avatar, they are always representations of her. And she's trying to recreate herself in the game world. It's only after she plays the game for a few hours that she decides, I want to change my hair or I want to change my skin color or whatever. I want to change gears. You teach a class called philosophy and video games. What do you hope your students get out of that class? And what do you think or what have they told you that they've gotten out of it? I think they're having fun. Like a lot, That's a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the conversation has, you know, we laugh a lot. It's just been lots of fun. Well, there's two big things I want them to get. One is that video games are something to think about, that there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff that we do with this. And I want to give them the vocabulary to be able to dig more deeply into a cool thought that they had about whatever it is that they're playing. That's one thing I want them to get. The other thing I want them to get, and this is probably really selfish of me, but like there's a lot of bad in the world right now. And we can spend our time staring at the, the potential doom that's coming. We can spend our time getting really upset at how bad the world is and feeling frustrated that things are not not going well. There are lots of college classes that do that. I think of them as doom staring classes, classes that really fixate on the darkness and what's wrong with the world. And we can get really anxious and upset about it. And I see this in my students, like the level of just existential anxiety that a lot of them have is, is bonkers. And part of what I want my students to get out of my class is the fact that you can still appreciate your life. You still can enjoy things and enjoying things is okay. Like my class, isn't about staring at the potential do. My class is about joy and joy is a perfectly reasonable thing to want in life. In fact, <laughs> probably one of the most important things. I think so. For you, how has engaging with first thinking about games more in the philosophical context, but also mm -hmm. engaging with now being philosophy professor change your life? Mm, the first part of your question is, is probably the easiest, right? That it's thinking about video games has changed the way that I play video games a lot. It changes the way that I think about what I do in games. It has made me be a little bit more thoughtful about why am I doing this particular thing? Why does it matter to me? And, and is this really the kind of person that I want to be? The second part of your question is a lot harder. Being a philosophy professor is weird. Like on the one hand, it's like a natural extension of my general nerdiness anyways. And I'm so grateful that somebody wants to pay me to be a nerd. I think the thing that worries me the most about being a philosophy professor is that when, when I get up in front of a class and I've got a room full of people that are listening to what I'm saying, there's always a potential that I could develop a kind of arrogance that what I'm saying is so bloody important that clearly people need to hear it. And I, I always want to try to retain the humility that I am really a nerd and that I got into philosophy because I enjoy conversations. That's in a very shallow, superficial way. I often think of myself as what I'm doing for my students is I'm making them really good at having good conversation with me. That's, that's incredibly shallow and superficial, but joy is a fine thing and conversations can be a source of joy. So yeah, 
being a philosophy professor is weird. I can imagine as someone who studied philosophy in undergrad, mm -hmm. the philosophy professors are all that I've encountered, highly intelligent, intense. Yeah, they like to talk. Like talking and maybe thinking too much sometimes. <laughs> you were like professional overthinkers. Like yeah. I, I love having these conversations and having these thoughts, but with humility, I always want to remind myself that I like to listen to. I love to hear what other people have to say and to try to incorporate that and to make progress by the back and forth of a conversation. That's what I care about most. I have two final questions I ask everyone on the podcast. The first is if you have any recommendations for anything games related, papers, games, books, art, whatever. A really great book is T. Nguyen's Games Art as Agency. It's been really blowing up right now and it's changed a lot of how a lot of people think about games. It forms like a really key basis of the way that I think about the aesthetics of games now. That's fantastic. What was one of the insights that you thought was particularly cool from that book? One of the cool things I love about that book is the way that he talks about that the value of playing a game isn't really just about the value of winning. It's about the value of striving. It's about the value of trying to do something. And he gives this great example of like how many times in games we choose not to win. Like we hold back. When I'm playing Mario Kart with my 10-year-old daughter, I don't play as hard as I possibly can. I'm not trying to crush her. I'm trying to extend the experience and make it even more enjoyable. I add extra rules. Like I'm not allowed to use red shells against my daughter. Um, and the reason why I add these extra rules is because it, it makes the game a little bit more, it makes the game a little bit harder for me, but it also just extends the joy of the experience of like just striving to win. I think that's a valuable thought. I think that's great. Very valuable. Any other recommendations? Um, other recommendations, there's a Danish game philosopher. His name is Jesper Yule. He's written quite a few books on games. His book, Half Real, is foundational now for thinking about philosophy of games. Another book of his, The Art of Failure, is really interesting. It's about why we enjoy playing games when we know that we're going to fail. Like we fail so much in games and failure isn't always a source of anxiety and pain. It's sometimes like tantalizing. It's sometimes part of the, the joy and the interest in playing a game. Last question. So the main motivation for this podcast is thinking about games as vehicles for understanding life. And there's a metaphor of life is a game. If you zoom out, what's your reflection on that metaphor? I think the thing I like about the metaphor is the reminder that you should have joy in your life. That game if it is really not a game if it's not fun. And I love the idea that a life is not really a life if it's not fun. Like fun should be part of life. There are lots of bad things in the world. We can worry about lots of things and I can get really upset about, am I doing enough to make the world a good place? Yes, you can do that if you really want to, but you can also remember to have fun. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Chris, on that note we should all go and have more fun. So thank you again. You've been a great, great guest and it's been a blast. Cool. Thanks again for having me.